Let's go to God in prayer, then we're going to start our lesson. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you once again for the many blessings you've already given us. And I pray now that we can listen to this lesson and we'll walk out of here different people because of what you want us to hear. And I pray the words that are spoken are the words that you want to be shared, not just what I feel or think, but that you, what you want us to hear. And God, I pray that we'll walk away different people. In Jesus' name, amen. One night, there was a father who heard his son in the bedroom. And as he walked by, he heard his son say, Ooh, you're going to get it. Ooh, you're going to get it. And he was the only child. So the dad walked into the room. He was a little curious. And he said, Son, what are you doing? And the son was reading a book. And he said, I've just been reading this book, and it's so frustrating to me how the hero gets beat up all the time. So because it frustrated me, I went to the last chapter of the book, and I read the last chapter. And you know what, Dad? The hero wins. So now whenever I'm reading the book and I see that the hero starts to get beat up, I just say, ooh, you're going to get it. Because I know what happens at the end of the chapter, Dad. And so he was so excited now. He was fired up. And now every time the dad heard him say, ooh, you're going to get it, he got inspired. You know, we can be the same way. Because now that the boy knew the end of the story, even though there was hard times for the hero, he knew it wasn't going to end that way. Because he knew the end of the story. The Bible's like that. You can read some of the Bible, and you think, man, if I didn't know the end of this story, I would think something is wrong here. That God's going to lose this battle. Because all throughout the Bible, his people have hard times, challenges. It looks like death is upon them. This is one of the stories I want us to look at today. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. This is a story of, of, of the Bible, but specifically with Adam and Eve. Because they were in a beautiful garden. They had everything they wanted. They even got to walk and talk with God. But then on comes the scene of the enemy, Satan, the devil. And he's out to destroy everything that God has done. And he's, he did a pretty good job of destroying things. The garden was gone, the tree of life was gone, and now Adam and Eve were starting to die. The peaceful world they once knew is now filled with sadness and pain. And it looks like God's people, Adam and Eve, lost. That Satan had won. And death now reigned where life was once created. But of course, that's not the last chapter of the book. But from that point on, God began to let us know what the last chapter of the book is going to be. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, verse 14 and 15, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and are all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So right after confronting Adam and Eve with what they've done, he turns and he looks over to Satan and he basically says, you're going to get it. You're going to get it for what you did. The seed of woman will crush your head. Now, did that happen? Absolutely. Jesus, the seed of woman, came and crushed his head. 
Look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews tells us he did it like this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So it says here, Jesus came to earth, became a human, died on the cross for our sins so he could destroy Satan and allow us to have forgiveness. Satan was crushed, destroyed by Jesus on the cross. So now the power of death no longer has the control of mankind. Now we don't have to fear the punishment of hell because now we have the opportunity of having eternal life with God. That is the last chapter. The last chapter is Jesus dying on the cross so we can have salvation. And the amazing thing is that all the Old Testament Bible before Jesus points to Jesus on the cross. They have prophecies which Jesus fulfilled on the cross. They had the fact that the serpent would be destroyed which Jesus fulfilled on the cross. The sin would be destroyed, Jesus fulfilled on the cross. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus and the cross. Everything in the New Testament points back to Jesus and the cross. Genesis 2 verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. He said, this is how I'm going to create man. Look up in chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he says he created man and got things started. But centuries later, Paul writes this. Look in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Romans 5, verse 14. So God started things with creating man... And Paul says in verse 14 of Romans 5, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Paul says Adam was a pattern of the one to come. That means Adam was a pattern in God's mind of what Jesus would be. That Adam, God says, let's create man in our image. He had this idea of what Jesus would be like, and he created Adam as a starting point for the pattern of Jesus. Look in 1 Corinthians 15. I need to explain this to you a little bit more. I kind of just flew over there a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. It says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. 
As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as it is the man from heaven, so also are those who are from heaven. He makes it clear that Adam was the first man in God's story, man from earth. But Jesus was the last man, the man that came from heaven. Jesus came to undo the damage that man, Adam, had done. The word Adam, that name literally means man. So God starts out by telling us his story. Let me tell you a story of a man named Adam. But then God writes the last chapter by having Jesus introduce himself as the son of man. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. Verse 4 through 7. Jesus is here, there's a bunch of people crowding around him, and he says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. At least 30 times in the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's not an accident. Jesus came to be the man that Adam wasn't. Adam was the first of natural, but the second was Jesus of spiritual. Jesus came as the Son of Man to undo the damage Adam, the man, had done. One commentator, Terry Fulham, said it like this. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. Jesus came to undo Adam's sin. And he became like Adam so that we might become like God. And that's what happened. Look in John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so God tied his story together around a man. But he also tied his story together around a garden. First, he gave us a man, Adam. Adam started things out, but he was the pattern of what was to come, and Jesus was the ending story of man. So when we look at Adam, we see the beginning, the introduction chapter. But when we look at Jesus, we see the last chapter, because that is what God had wanted. So he started with a man, but he also used a garden to help that last chapter be created. Now, what is the name of the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that it all started? Eden. Exactly. Eden, the word itself means delightful region, a paradise. And it was not only a delightful paradise, but it was a place that they were able to walk and talk with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost it all. From that day forward, the garden of Eden became a symbol of what was lost through sin. Even when people think about the Garden of Eden, they think about, yeah, it was a paradise, but once they bit the fruit, 
Now was the place that sin started. That's what it was known for. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost it all. So from that day forward, that's what the Garden of Eden was a symbol of. But then Jesus came, and he introduced a different garden to us. The garden he introduced to us was the Garden of Gethsemane. The first garden, the Garden of Eden, became a symbol of what had been lost through sin. The second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, became a symbol of the battle Jesus had for our souls. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 36. Now, Jesus spent the majority of his time ministering around the uh, Sea of Galilee, but at least once a year, he would make his way up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And whenever he came to Jerusalem, he spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, we don't really get to read much about the Garden of Gethsemane until Jesus is betrayed. And here in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watching me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you would not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. The word Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, here's a couple of pictures here. I'm going to show you. Farmers would use, um, they would put their olives in a basin, and then they have a big uh, uh, a stone that they would use, either a man or a donkey, that would grind the oil so it would go around. So they take the, the olives, set them there, and they have the first grinding of the olives, and that will produce what they consider virgin oil, the first of the oils from the olives. And they would use this virgin oil at the temples. This would be the, the sacred kind of oil that they would have at the temples. So after they did that, they put another heavy stone on there for a second grinding of the olives. So they would, once again, grind the, the olives until another vat of oil came out. The second pressing of the oil would be used for more personal things like cooking. That would be the second round of oil. Then they would put a third stone on there and have a third pressing of the olives. The oil that came from the third pressing of the olives would be used more for things like oil in the lamps that they would have in their home. So the first pressing was of, for the temple use. The second pressing was personal use. And then the third pressing was more of a service to be used in service. So that's how... The, the Jewish people would press out the oils from the olives. Now, they had three different pressings that they did. Now think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
How many times did he pray? Three different times. Matthew 26, verse 44. So he left them and went away once more praying the third time, saying the same thing. Just as they in their uh, oil press, three times, Jesus prayed, not just once, not just twice, but three times. The first garden was that Adam represents the fact that Adam failed to stand against sin. The second garden expresses the fact that Jesus was so pressed down, weighed down with our sins that he felt overwhelmed to the point of death. One garden represented sin. The second garden represented Jesus fighting sin for our souls. The first garden, Adam chose the sin. The second garden, Jesus chose to save us. Jesus was pressed down, overwhelmed. But that, again, is just the second chapter of it. Because he used man to help us see the first beginning in the last chapter, Jesus. Then he used the garden to help us see the beginning of the, of the story. But yet, the second garden is a garden that helps us see victory over our sin. He used man, he used the garden, and then thirdly, he used a tree. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, verse 16. I hope we can see the picture that's being laid here of the first and the last chapter. Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make... Am I reading the right scripture here? No, 16. All right, here we go. I need glasses. That's all right. I'm almost 50. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. It was their sin at the tree in the garden that brought sin into the world. It was their sin that robbed Adam and Eve of their life. But it was another tree, the tree that Jesus was on, in which he died for our sin. One tree started sin, the next tree ended sin. Look in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now think about it. Is all this a coincidence? No way. God had a plan for all this. So what about Jesus dying on the tree, on the cross? It's not a coincidence that Jesus was condemned in a society that uses a cross as execution. Even that was a part of God's plan in that final chapter, for us to see a tree that he would be nailed to. In verse 4, Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. Was there anything that Jesus did that made him deserve this kind of punishment? No, not at all. But he chose to go through this 
for you and for me. Now, to drive this point home, look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. As I'm about to close out here. Deuteronomy chapter 1. I'm sorry, 21. Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Jesus never sinned. There was no reason he should have been cursed. But because Jesus needed to be cursed, so we wouldn't be. God had him hung on a tree. Another commentator wrote this. He said, the first tree was planted by God, but the second tree was planted by man. God warned man not to eat of the first tree, but God freely invites us to draw near and eat of the fruit of the second tree. The eating of the first tree brought sin and death, but the eating of the second tree comes life and salvation. Hopefully you can see how God tied these things all together. It was a man, it was a garden, it was a tree that God used to teach us about salvation. It was that the Son of Man crushed the head of Satan. And I say this because sometimes as we go through life, just as Cedric shared in communion, we go through life, we go through hard times, and we think, why is God doing this to me? And why is all these hard times going on? Why am I hurting financially? Why my back hurt? Why my knees hurt? Why my kids acting the fool? What's wrong with my spouse? What's my job? I mean, we have all these drama issues. And instead of looking at it and getting overwhelmed, we need to start saying, ooh, you going to get it. Now, here's something that, that really caught my attention even more. Adam and Eve have sinned. They disobeyed God, and they did what they should not have done by eating the fruit from that tree. So they went into hiding. This, this, this really blew me away, though. Many times when I see people do something, and they keep repeatedly doing something wrong, or something they know they shouldn't have done, in my mind, I think, you know what, if I keep rescuing them, they're going to keep doing the same thing. Until they realize it and suffer the consequences, they are never going to learn. Now, then that's my mindset. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's how I think about it sometimes. If I keep picking up my daughter, never mind, let me just keep going. So let's get back to the garden. Let's get back to the spiritual stuff. Did God know Adam and Eve's sin? Absolutely. He knows everything. Did he know they had eaten from that tree? Absolutely. He knew everything. Did he know where they were? Absolutely. He knew where they were. But look at what it says. Look in Genesis chapter 3. I never realized this until I was looking at this lesson today, or the other day. 
God could have said, they ate from the tree that I told them not to eat from. But you know what? I'm just going to leave them fools alone. They're going to get what they deserve. I ain't going to mess with them. Again, that's why I'm not God. But that's not what God did. If you look in chapter 3, verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? Now, did God know where they were? Yes. Did he know what they were doing? Yes. Was he playing Marco Polo with them? No. He'd come to find what they had broken. He could have let them go and say, just do it on your own. But instead, he wasn't playing around. He went looking for them to fix the problem. Many of us, myself included, would think, you know what? I'm tired of fixing this stuff. I gave you the perfect situation, the perfect plan, and you chose to mess it up, you deal with it. But God didn't respond like that. Because God had in mind, you know what? This is what they did, but this is the pattern of what I want things to be. So this is the intro, but I'm going to write the final chapter. So I'm going to go and look for them. In my mind, I never thought God was really looking to fix the problem. Until I realized, you know what? There wouldn't be a last chapter if God didn't go look to fix the problem. He went looking for them in spite of their sin. That's something that's challenging, guys. Because sometimes we see people in sin and we just like, you know what? Stay on their own. I'm going to stay away from them because I ain't getting pulled down with them. I'm just done with them. And how long are you going to be like this? And if you're sitting there thinking that ain't you, think about your marriage. Because sometimes you say, he ain't going to never change. He's going to always be like this. Sometimes we are like that with each other. But God wasn't like that with us. And we're to imitate God. So if God was willing to chase after us, think about it. Not many of us woke up saying, I want to become a Christian. Let me get rid of all my sin. We didn't come into the church looking and longing for it like that. Some people had to sit down with some of us knuckleheads and hash it out with us. We didn't long for it, but yet God pursued each and every one of us. This is something we got to understand. That's why he said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Last scripture we're going to look at. Yes, it is. The last one. 2 Peter 3. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Future preacher right there. 2 Peter 3 verse 8 and 9. Look, I'm the only one preaching today. Yeah, go ahead. No. <laughs> it says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
God is in the business. God is in the lifestyle of looking for the lost. Looking for those that are trying to hide away from him. Looking for those that are too scared to come out in the open, into the light. The question for you today is, are you playing hide and seek with God? Are you playing peekaboo? I'll see you on Sundays and Wednesdays. Now I'm gone. Are you playing Marco Polo with God? What is it in your life you need to deal with? You know it's in there, but you're hiding it as if God doesn't know. Listen, he used a man, he used a garden, he used a tree. All to help us see the last chapter of the story. So we won't get discouraged if Satan has a couple of little victories. We can still look at him and say, ooh, you're going to get it. That's what we need to understand. When we see our brothers and sisters in sin, we don't need to kick them to the curb. Because sometimes Christians are best at killing other wounded Christians. It's like a horse. You see a horse, it's time to shoot the horse. You don't just go shoot the wounded Christian. You got to look at him and say, you know what? Satan's going to get it. And sometimes that's, you may not even know what to say, but all you got to do is help people remember, ooh, you're going to get it. God wants us to be at the end of the story with him. Remember, the man, the garden, and the tree. And the real victory is already won. We just have to remember, God has the victory, and Satan is going to get it. To God be the glory. Amen.